If you uh, don't have your Bible, you can look on the outline in front of you, the handout. There's a a text printed for you and also an outline. Before we uh, dig in, let me pray and then we'll uh, look at this passage. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask that you would come and meet with us now. Uh, Come and teach us through this passage. Would you convict and challenge and change, uh, help us to learn more uh, about you and more about ourselves and more about our need uh, based on what we see in Acts chapter 2. Come do this and we would be very thankful. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. All right, last week we talked about the Holy Spirit, and we did that through looking at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. And I realize, I know this is not the case maybe for everyone, but I realize for some of you, uh, all this talk about the Holy Spirit Spirit, uh, can be unsettling. Uh, And you know what, actually, I get that. I mean, how do we understand and come to grips and understand how this mysterious, invisible, hard-to-understand force is actually at work inside of us? How do we know whether that's happening? Or better yet, how do we know that this mysterious force that we call the Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, is actually at work in our friendships and at work inside our community? We have this tendency to complicate things, and this is one area where we really complicate it, but it's not all that hard to understand. Simply put, how do you know whether the Spirit is at work? Here's how you know. Life follows the Spirit. And that life that the Spirit brings comes with certain signs. Think of it this way. Think about if you were to uh, get sick on campus in your dorm and the EMTs would would have to come to campus, or if you had to be taken to the ER, or if you made an appointment with the doctor, what is the first thing any medical technician is going to check? Vital signs. They're going to check your blood pressure, and they're going to check your heart rate, your pulse, your respiratory rate. Why? Well, because you know that oftentimes those are called vital signs because if something's wrong with one of those, and one of those is not registering correctly, chances are something more serious is wrong. If you've got a high fever, you've got an infection. If your blood pressure's high, it might be an indication that you have a heart condition. But if your vitals are good, chances are you're healthy. It's the same with the Spirit. There are these vital signs of the Spirit if you will. And the passage that we see tonight that we're looking at, again, there are many, but this passage shows us three vital signs. Three signs that the Holy Spirit is at work in your life. That the Holy Spirit is at work in the community around you. And you see them on your outline. When the Spirit's at work, you begin to reason. You start to think. We'll talk about that. Secondly, Uh, True fellowship starts to happen in your life and with people around you. And then thirdly, you're cut to the heart. Or you are humbled when the Spirit starts to work in your life. Let's look at number one. You begin to reason. Look at verses uh, 22 through 36. 
Notice Peter in this sermon, he does not begin by saying, look, guys, you know, we had, we had this intense experience with Jesus, and, and it was true for us, and it might not be for you, but for us, this really did happen, and it was really good. Is that how Peter starts his sermon? No, look at the sermon carefully. Peter's sermon is very well-reasoned. It's very well thought out. It is an exposition of the central truths in the Christian life. And he backs up every one of his statements. If you notice, it's chock full of Old Testament references. He backs up everything he says with the Word of God. What's my point? My point is this. Peter here is giving us reasons, not personal opinions. Another way to say it is Peter is not asking these people that he's preaching to to have a blind leap of faith and to say, hey, listen, you just trust me, jump off, and I promise you, you won't regret it. It will all work out, this Christianity thing. Peter doesn't do that. And I think another thing is that we need to understand when talking about the life, death, and the resurrection of the Messiah of Jesus Christ, friends, that was the last thing that these people wanted to believe. Have you ever thought about that? You know, we tend to look at this and say, well, of course they would believe this. But think about it this way. No one would have believed Peter if he would have said, hey guys, two or three of us saw this, and you should believe it. Notice what Peter says. We all saw him. It was a matter of public record, and every one of us, 500 people, were witnesses that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was really alive. It was an historic fact. Now, some of you might say, well, okay, I hear you, but Jason, let's be honest. I mean, back then, they believed more in the supernatural. I mean, they were superstitious people for the most part. It was pre-scientific age. Yeah, you know, I understand why they might believe that. We're just just not that supernatural anymore. Okay, but if you look at the passages themselves, that's not how the people acted. You know how they acted? The people in the New Testament act a whole lot like you and I do. They were skeptical. Matthew 28, you don't have to turn there now. Jesus is resurrected from the dead and he's appearing before uh, his disciples. That's important, not by a bunch of random folks, but before his disciples, people that had seen him and touched him and heard him. And in Matthew 28, it says, when they saw Jesus, this blew my mind the first time I picked up on this and it's easy to miss, it said they saw him and they worshiped. And then Matthew adds this phrase, but some doubted. People that had been with him could not believe their eyes. And so Jesus, if you look at the accounts, had to continually prove himself that he was proved to others that he was really alive and that he had been resurrected from the dead. Remember Thomas, doubting Thomas. Jesus said, come, 
Touch me. I will show you that I am alive. Why did he have to continually prove that he was really alive? Because they didn't believe it. Yes, it's true that maybe they were believed more in the supernatural then than we do now, but it cannot be said based on the evidence of the Bible that they believed more in the resurrection than we do today. They were every bit as skeptical, and yet they believed. Why did they believe? They believed not because they wanted to, or not because it was an inspiring story that they thought, yeah, if I get on board with this, man, life would work for me. They believed, friends, because the evidence before them was so overwhelming that they were forced to believe despite what they actually thought. Friends, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is an historic fact. Why do I say this? I say this because the Holy Spirit gets you to think. When the Holy Spirit starts to work, you start to reason. And so stop writing off RUF because you think it's just a bunch of strange religious people. It's not. It's for people that want facts. It's for people that want evidence. It's for people that want proof. It's for people that want demonstration. And the Bible actually has the gall to assume that you actually have to check your brain at the door in order to reject Christianity. The Bible has the gall to assume that the evidence is on its side, not the other way around. And so, before you reject Christianity, investigate it. And look at what massive intellects have found intellectually viable. The Spirit gets you to think. The second thing the Spirit does when the Spirit starts to work, one of the signs is you start to think. And secondly, true fellowship starts to take place in your midst. Look at verse 42. They devoted, it says there in that section that they devoted themselves to lots of things. But one of the, and we could talk about that for the rest of the semester, but one thing that they devoted themselves to was fellowship. They devoted themselves to a community of Christians. Look at verse 44. It elaborates on this fellowship and it says, all who believed were together and had all things in common The early church and these early Christians, the reason why they stood out in the world is because of their loyalty to one another. Because of their love for one another and the unity that they had had with each other. Over the years, uh, people have looked at this text and accused the early church of being a communist organization. And the reason why is because they... It gives the impression that they put everything in one pot, didn't have any personal property that they owned, put it all in one pot and shared with one another. But the text, if you look closely, tells us that that's not the case. The giving was voluntary. It wasn't pushed by the government. And likewise, the people still had personal property. All throughout the book of Acts, and even in verse 46, it says they met in their homes. They still owned homes. The point that Luke is making here 
is that these people loved one another and they took care of one another and their fellow Christians was the most important family and community in their lives. Question. What is typically the number one community in our lives? I'll tell you what mine is. Probably yours too. Our natural family, wouldn't you say? To your most loyal and committed to? But that's not what Jesus, if you look at the Gospels, Jesus says that our first family is not our natural family. Remember when he says, you know, you are my brothers and sisters, when his real family is standing outside. Jesus, all through the Gospels, tells us that our first family is actually the people of God and that they are the ones that demand the highest loyalty and the highest commitment. You know, sadly, we go as so far to say that our first allegiance is to athletic teams or our first allegiance is to our alma mater or an organization or a group or a sorority or a, fraterni- or a fraternity. Let me say this as gently as I can and as plainly as I can. But if the gospel is ever going to go forth on this campus, you know how that's going to happen? This campus will be reached with the gospel of Jesus Christ when our first allegiance is to the people of God. And you know, that is hard for us to get our minds around, that type of commitment to a group of people that we see here in Acts chapter 2, verses 42 and following. And here's the reason why it's hard, is because we don't like to be that committed. Do we? You know, I mean, we want to be committed to a point, but we also want to hold out for better options to come along. And it's also hard because not only do we often want to hold out for something better and we really have a hard time with committing to something, but we also have a hard time because we, me included, have consumer mentalities in which we look at a group of people or we look at a community and we get sad and angry and go elsewhere when things don't go exactly like we want them to go. And instead of serving, and instead of giving, and instead of dying, we say, what's in it for me? What can I get out of this? Do you want true fellowship? Do you want to give yourself to a community? Then one thing we see in the Bible about true fellowship is that you must be a giver. Fellowship is not hanging out at Starbucks drinking coffee in the library. Because fellowship costs something. Fellowship, friends, means that you hang out with someone and you say, instead of, hey, what's up, how you doing? You sit down and you say, how are you really doing with the transition to college and all that it brings? And then... After you ask that question, then you open up and you share your struggles and your own brokenness with them. 
Because once you do that, guess what? The floodgates will open because you know as well as I do that you're never going to be honest and have an authentic relationship with anyone unless that person is authentic and open with you. Fellowship means that it might cost you a letter grade because you have to go and actually love someone that needs to be loved. True fellowship means that you weep with people instead of gossiping about them. True fellowship means that you rejoice with people instead of becoming jealous and envious of them. Friends, I have missed out most of my life on the joy of having true Christian fellowship. And you know why? Because I've never learned to give myself away. And to have true fellowship means we give ourselves away. We give our resources, we give our time, we give all that we are. You know, here's the encouraging thing, is that is actually happening in this place. It's happening in RUF. But instead of being something that's happening in a few pockets here and there, it should be something when the Spirit shows up and starts to work, it starts happening all over the place all of a sudden our relationships deepen. How do you know the Spirit's at work? Well, you start to reason, you start to experience true fellowship, and then lastly, uh, you're cut to the heart. Look at verse 37. This is probably the most vivid result of the Spirit's work among us and among these people that Peter is preaching to. It says that they were cut, isn't that an interesting phrase? They were cut to the heart. Friends, you don't just decide to one day take Christianity up. Christianity takes you up. When the Spirit invades your heart, it grabs you with power. The word cut to the heart there means to stab or to pierce. What does that mean? Well, follow along with me here. Look at verses 23 and 36 because it answers that question. Look at what Peter says twice in this sermon. This Jesus, whom this group of people over here crucified. Is that what it says? Very specifically, Peter says, this Jesus that you crucified and killed. I want to suggest and submit to you, that's what it means to be cut to the heart. How so? Let me work that out. Let me say it this way. You are not a Christian until Jesus' work on the cross is more than just a generalized atonement. You are a Christian when you see that it was... when you see that it is your sin that put Jesus there. When you see in your sin suddenly becomes very personal to you. Let me say it this way and and kind of illustrate. Remember who's giving this sermon. Peter. Remember what happened in Peter's life a few days before this. Remember, Peter was the disciple that denied Jesus three times. I mean, can you think of anything worse than that? 
He walked with Jesus. He was with him. He knew who he was. He called him the Christ, and he denied him that he ever knew him to Jesus' face. And Luke, in Luke 22, and you ought to read it. That's another one of those things that's so easy to miss. Says that Jesus looked at Peter. This is after he denied him. Jesus looked at Peter, and then it says this phrase, and Peter remembered. Think about that. Jesus, bloody, purple, swollen face is glaring at you. It's glaring at Peter, and it says Peter remembered. And in that moment, I want to suggest that all the things that Jesus taught that were theoretical to Peter suddenly became personal. It is one thing, friends, to break God's rule in the things that he tells us to do in his word, but it is a totally different thing to break God's heart. When you're cut to the heart, you know that you're breaking his heart. And my question is, what is the one sin, I want you to think about this, what is the one sin right now that you believe keeps you away from God? And I want you to name it. Because it's not until you name that sin that you will ever see that Jesus actually on the cross became that sin for you. And until you get that, it will never mean anything to you that Jesus, when he's on the cross, and some of his last words to the Father is, my, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? In that moment, Jesus was bearing your forsakenness. The thing that you fear most, and that's to be all alone, Jesus was bearing it because he's being, he was being forsaken by the Father. And he was bearing it so that you and I won't have to. You see, when you realize that it was your sin, remember he, Peter says, you crucified him. When you realize it was your sin that put Jesus on the cross, then you are cut to the heart. And my question is, has that ever happened to you? Has there ever been a time in your life when you have realized this? If not, let me say this as gently as possible then you're not a Christian. Because Christianity means that Jesus died for you in your sin. And Christianity is about realizing that what you have done is what put Jesus there. And Jesus has wiped it away through going to the cross for you. The 18th century... George Whitfield, Great Awakening. He was an Anglican priest. And 
he was an incredible preacher and he loved to preach and he was so captivated by the gospel that he had to tell everyone that he came in contact with. So much so that he was disappointed and discouraged by his church and the number of people coming. And so he did something that was unheard of back in that day and it was actually radical, hadn't been done in centuries. He started to just go outside and start preaching. And that's where we get this open-air preaching. Whit- Whitfield was one of the founders of that. And so he loved to talk about the gospel so much, he would just start going out and preaching to a group of people. Well, he decided to go outside of town to the coal mines and preach to the coal miners. But you need to understand something. The coal miners were at the bottom of the uh, totem pole socially. Uh, they were often poor. Uh, They were often rough and dirty. The work was very, very difficult. And if you were a coal miner, your lifespan uh, was very short. They often died of a lung disease in their 40s. And Whitfield, it's a big deal that he's going to the coal mines. And so Whitfield goes to the coal mines and up come these coal miners. And they see waiting for them George Whitfield in his clerical garb, full, powdered wig, black robe, even has a podium there outside the coal mines. And they were amazed that someone, he was well known, and so they were amazed that someone like that would come and preach to them and tell them about the gospel. And so uh, hundreds of these coal miners gathered around Whitfield. And one of the witnesses that was there that day said that these coal miners had black dust all over their faces. And he said at one point in the sermon, when Whitfield was talking about the gospel, he was preaching a sermon much like we see here in Acts chapter 2 that Peter was preaching. And at one point, this witness said he looked at the coal miners and saw these white splotches start to appear on their faces. And he said tears were streaming down through the coal dust in their faces. Why? Well, they were cut to the heart. Now, I realize that some people are criers and some people aren't. But whether the tears are on the heart or whether the tears are on your face... That's how it happens. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the Spirit's work in our midst.